All right, this is our first of 11 weeks in 1 Peter. This study is about hope. Hope is essential to life as water to fish or as air to a jumbo jet. That's how basic hope is to our existence. Think about how many times the word hopeless has shown up in suicide letters. Or if it's not used directly, you can read it in between every line. Take away our hope, you take away our ability to go on living. Life turns into something somewhere between severe depression and despair. The gospel, the story of Jesus and the life into which he invites us, is all about hope. And yet it's never expressed anywhere more beautifully than Peter when he writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. I love the way that he doesn't just call it hope, not just wishful thinking. He calls it a living hope. It has a life to it that in turn becomes part of our essence for living. This is the hope that Christ has called us to. We might come to this and say, well, that's good. It's meaningful, but is it relevant to our life? Could a fisherman turn philosopher that spoke to a group of people 2,000 years ago speak words that even make sense to us today? I mean, is life as we know it today even remotely like life 2,000 years ago, given all of the advancement in knowledge, all of the history the technological innovations that have occurred in 2,000 years. Isn't life just a little more complex than it was back there? Can the words that Peter says be that real to us? Are they a little more naive for our life? Is it relevant? And even more, is it reliable? 2,000 years ago, that's a long time. Do we know that the person sharing them has weight to speak these words? Can I trust the words that are spoken? Well, what if the person who wrote these words actually witnessed all of the events around the life and ministry of Jesus? What if he was there from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, watched all the miracles? What if he was the first to recognize that this Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. What if boldly he professed that faith? And what, what if he knew both the joy and the despair, the victories of that journey with Christ and the horrible nosedives and failures? What if he was a witness to the resurrection? And what if he lived the early years of the church to the point where he understood everything that these people were going through? What if he spoke as though he was speaking from God himself, would, would those words be reliable? And what if, even though these people lived at a time where we didn't have iPads everywhere we went and smartphones and all the complexities of a technological age, what if in spite of that, these people had the same basic needs for life that all of us have? What if their faith struggled every day through hardships just like you and me? And in the end, life 2,000 years apart at its essence is exactly the same. Would that make these words relevant? I think so. And so we come to this book, and my expectation is that we will become very dear friends with the writer and the recipients. And by the time we're done, 
we will have recognized that even though Peter wrote to a particular group of people in a particular region 2,000 years ago, that through him, the Holy Spirit was writing to you and I today. We begin looking at the man with the message, and we're going to just be in the first two verses today. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, alien strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. These two verses represent the context, largely seen in the person writing it as well as those receiving it. So let's speak for a little bit about the writer. It's Peter. Yeah, it's, it's that Peter. <laughs> Brash, confident, boasting more than he could fulfill, a man of great faith and intent, yet a man of no faith and failure. The Peter who was the very first follower of Jesus mentioned in the Gospels. We have a lot of firsts with Peter. Peter was the first to profess that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was Christ himself who gave him the name Peter. Petros, it's the masculine form of the word, and it literally means a stone about the size that you can hold in your hand. And when Peter proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Christ said on that proclamation, on that rock, and he used the feminine petros, which is the word for foundation, in other words, bedrock. He said, on this bedrock that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm going to build my church. Peter had the honor of being the first to declare that universal truth upon which all of us who follow Christ stand. And so he gets the nickname. He's Rocky. He no sooner says the right thing that he says the wrong thing and attempts to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus says, now, now I need you behind my back, Satan. Peter's the first the night Jesus was taken to take out a sword to fight to defend Christ. And in that same evening, he was the first to swear that he never knew Christ. Yeah, it's that Peter. If ever there was a man who understood life with all of its hope and the onset of hopelessness, it was Peter. I picture him on that night. Jesus had said to Peter, in spite of his bold proclamation that he would never deny him, he said, Peter, you're going to be the very one. You're going to deny me three times before morning. Before the rooster crows, you'll have denied me. Peter swears, oh, Lord, I will never deny you. And yet, we know what happened. Give him credit that he followed Christ when the others just ran in fear. Give him credit that he stayed at a distance watching, warming himself at the fire outside of the home where Jesus was being tried. Give him credit for trying. But it was there that three times, each time more strongly, and finally swearing an oath that he never knew. And the Gospels record that that third time said, I do not know the man, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus. But more than that, Jesus turned and their eyes met. And that was the last time Peter saw Jesus before his death. That's hopelessness. We live on the other side of the empty tomb. We understand that there's daylight, that there's grace, that there's forgiveness. All Peter knew at that moment was that he had lost his Christ. And in the moment it mattered most, he had no faith at all. Hopelessness. And then Sunday morning, 
in the empty tomb. And Mark 16 has this powerful moment when the women come and discover that the stone has been tossed away. And a young man, an angel, speaks to them. And he says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Then the angel gives the women these instructions. Go and tell the disciples that I'm going ahead to Galilee, and I will meet them there. Now, that's pretty much our recollection of that text. But there's a very important phrase that might be overlooked, and it's these simple words. Go and tell the disciples. And Peter... He is singled out. Tell Peter. Hope. Imagine the the thought that there might be a fresh start, an opportunity to be forgiven. Hope out of hopelessness. We know that there eventually was this moment on a beach, divinely captured fish on a fire, the disciples with Jesus. And finally, I wonder what it was like between Peter and Jesus those other times he showed up until this conversation. I wonder if Peter was both happy and yet ashamed. I wonder how long he could look into Jesus' eyes without looking away. Until that moment when Jesus initiates a conversation with Peter. And the same way Peter three times denied him, Jesus makes Peter three times profess his love and then fully restores him. He says, you're going to feed my sheep. You're going to shepherd my sheep. You see, if anyone can tell us about hope and the future and restoration, it's Peter. He's writing, according to this, from a city that is codenamed Babylon. We take that to mean Rome. The various cities that are mentioned in these first two verses are on the exact path that Silas would have taken to deliver these letters if he started from Rome. We also know that Peter died not long after the writing of these two letters in Rome as a martyr. And so he's writing from Rome. And it is no small thing that Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, What Peter is intending here is to help people understand that the words he's about to speak are from God. He is speaking with divine authority. That's what the word apostle means. Now, that word apostolos is used three general ways in the New Testament. The first way it's used is the most general designation, that's as messenger. The word from a spiritual perspective is used in the book of Acts for a broad category of spiritual leaders. For instance, Barnabas is referred to as one of the apostles, along with Paul, spokesman for God. But then the third, not just as a term, but as a title, the title apostle is distinctly used for the 12 men Christ called out to be those on which the church is built. It was a very particular thing. So when you hear people today, and just let me put this out there so you understand, a lot of people will view this differently. My view is that you can refer to apostles as spiritual leadership, particularly those that go in the name of Christ as missionaries. They are the messengers of Christ. That's an apostolic ministry to bring the gospel to the world around you. But the particular institution of apostles 
was a limited ministry for the beginning of the church and was only designated for those that Jesus himself had distinctly called. Therefore, it's inappropriate to ever give that title as though it has that weight of authority to any human being today. We are all apostles, but yet we are none of us the apostles. Let me give you a list of things that Scripture says are required in order for one to be among this elite founding group of leaders for the church. First of all, they needed to be personally called by Jesus. Paul defended himself as an apostle to the Gentiles because Jesus himself met him on the road and called him out. And the others, of course, were called by Jesus during his earthly ministry. Second, they needed to be eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. We're not going to go to texts about these. If you're interested, I'd be happy to provide them for you. Third, they were called to the founding of the church. They played a key role in bringing the word of God and the wisdom of God and the direction of God to the founding of the church while the church was really lacking any other teaching. Much of what we have in Scripture is their writing, and therefore we can trust that it is directed from God. Fourth, the apostles spoke with the authority of Christ. When Paul and Peter say, I'm an apostle, they're reminding people that what I'm about to say is not just human words. Don't dismiss it. And I think that's important for me to to say this to you as we go through this. Not only do you need to understand them, you can't ignore them. Here's my job. My job is to do my best to stay out of the way, (laughs) to as best as possible reflect what I believe is being taught, and then help us wrestle with it and apply it into our everyday lives. Now, when I'm trying to apply it, you're free to dismiss those and find your own applications. But... When we do say this is what Scripture says and we've come to understand it, the one thing you can't do because you might have trouble with it or disagree with it, the one thing you can never do is dismiss it. You can't. That's Peter's intent by saying, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, these are the very words of life and hope to you. Do something with them. Another important thing is that the apostle's prove their authority by performing miraculous signs. A lot of us have this notion that everybody in the New Testament performed miracles, casting out demons, healing the lame, but that's actually not true. There's a reason why the miraculous things were called signs, because they're a validation of the message. Jesus himself performed miracles, and then the only people recorded in, in the book of Acts that performed miracles were the apostles. The validation of their message in the same way Jesus' miracles were a validation of his deity. Finally, the apostles were stewards of the gospel. They were to guard the gospel, to protect it against the early heresies so that it survived those early challenges, and then to bring it to the world. And that's exactly what they did. This is Peter. This is the one that's speaking. And what he's saying is, yeah, I'm Rocky. You know my story. You know the ups and downs, but I'm speaking for God here. Now, just quickly to the people who are the recipients of the message. Peter refers to them in several ways. First, he designates where they are. Each of these cities is in Asia Minor, part of the Roman Empire. It's important that we understand that location because during this time in history, the first great persecution of the church 
was taking place under the emperor Nero. Many of you know the story. A large amount of Rome burned. Thousands of people died. Many believe that Nero himself did that in order to rebuild Rome to the glory that was his desire, which in fact he did. Nero needed to deflect that accusation, and so he came up with the idea of blaming the Christians. Believe it or not, in Rome, the going idea of Christianity was that they were sexually perverted cannibals, really screwed up people. There was this thing they did called an agape feast, which turned in their thinking to this sort of weird sexual orgy, which included incest. Besides that, they ate the body and blood of people. And so it was very easy for Nero to say, here's a group of people people are just waiting to hate. And so he blamed it on the Christians. Formally decreed that Christians were to be arrested and executed. And they did it in the most horrific of ways. Men, women, children, all fed to animals, wrapped in meat so that dogs could eat them alive. They were wrapped in skin that was soaked in oil and lit as torches. Nero burned Christians as lanterns for his parties. All this was taking place when Peter, from that very city, wrote to these churches who, while they were not necessarily under the direct actions of Nero, were experiencing the overflow of that hatred and themselves were being persecuted and beginning to be put to death and losing their jobs and being ostracized. This is a very hard season. So when he says who he's writing to, you understand why that location is important. But then he refers to them with some very specific terms. Let's go on and read them. The first thing he does is he calls them God's elect. They're recipient of grace by God's initiation. You may be rejected by the world around you, but you're chosen by God. You have worth and value to him. But then he uses another phrase. He calls them strangers, aliens. Literally means non-citizens without social standing, marginalized socially and spiritually. Peter is writing to a balance of Jews and Gentiles. And what you will see as we read through the book is that Peter seems to be at times referring to Jewish tradition and other times referring to pagan and Greek tradition. So he's writing to both. But they are all of them non-citizens to Rome. Some of them just because they will never be citizens. They're either Jewish or they're slaves. And others because they have a new citizenship. See, a Christian, an elect person of God, is citizen first and foremost in the kingdom of God. And therefore, in some sense, we are all of us aliens to the culture around us. The third phrase he uses is the word scattered, away from home and under persecution. This literally is the diaspora. That is a phrase traditionally used for the Jewish people who have been scattered from their homeland. Peter is using it here not just to refer to Jews that have been scattered as a result of that early persecution in Jerusalem, but he's literally referring to the new people of God who are now scattered and fearing for their lives because at this stage, Christians had stopped meeting publicly. They met publicly and had the favor of all the people early on in the book of, book of Acts. But at some point, that turned. 
And now because of persecution, they're not meeting publicly. They're meeting in hiding. They're scattered. The true diaspora, the people of God in hiding. And then it's interesting, he uses a fourth description. And it's almost like a contrast to these others. Yeah, you're aliens, and yes, you're dispersed in hiding. But remember this, you are chosen by God. I think it's similar to the term elect, but more clear. You are chosen by God. And then he uses four phrases to explain what that means. Chosen by God, first, by the foreknowledge of the Father. Second, through the sanctifying of the Spirit. And third, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then finally, and the sprinkling of blood. Now, I want you to note that Peter invokes every person of the Trinity in this chosenness The Father, in eternity past, knew us, was in relationship with us. Remember the way we explained that. God is eternal. He sits apart from time. Time is so much part of our nature that we can't fathom thinking about things not happening sequentially. But God's eternal. Time is part of his creation. When he says, I'm the beginning and the end, he means it. And he's that all the time. And so it's reasonable that he was in this time long before we got there. And he was already in relationship with us. The Father knew us. Second, the Holy Spirit sanctified us, cleansed us, birthed us into the body of Christ. Why? For obedience to the Son, Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of blood. Sprinkling of blood is about spiritual cleansing. These are the things that make us chosen. Imagine the impact, the reminder that, yeah, you may be discouraged, you're scattered, you're aliens, you're foreigners in the culture around you. You're not just foreign to them, but evil. Because of that, you're scattered and in hiding. But never forget this. You are rejected by the world, but you are chosen by God. And that's why he can turn to them. I find this very interesting that the first thing he does is to pronounce a blessing. Knowing all that they're going through, what's the first thing he says to them? Grace and peace be yours in abundance. I love that. And that sets up the whole perspective that Peter has as we go forward. And so let me just help you understand some of the things you're not going to hear in this study as we seek to find hope for hard times. You're not going to hear anywhere in Peter's letter where he tries to answer the question, why would a loving God let innocent people suffer? That's not going to happen. You're not going to find Peter saying, it's going to get better. There's nowhere in this passage that Peter's going to say, the reason why you're suffering is because you don't have faith enough, and if you have ever-increasing faith, eventually you're going to be wealthy and healthy, and everything's going to be great, because that's what God wants for everybody. There's nowhere Peter's going to say that. In fact, that's consistent with the whole of God's Word. Interesting that even to Job, God never bothered to explain himself. What you have in Scripture is the promise that even though I do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. You see, what Peter does is get us past this pie-in-the-sky notion, this way that we've turned Christianity into a hope that we can avoid hardship. And what he's basically said is, no, life is hard. Suffering's a part of life. We all suffer. But God's grace and peace is made available in abundance in the midst of it. 
and that God's presence is there to use it all for good. If we were to frame the theme of 1 Peter, it would boil down to these two words, suffer well. Suffering is a part of life. It's inescapable. And you either fall towards God in the midst of it or you fall away from God. You either abandon your faith or embrace the fact that God is going to work for the good in the whole. And in the midst of all of life's circumstances, there is a hope that is living and that allows us to transcend those things. That's the journey I offer you through this book. I think it's filled with hope and comfort. It's filled with perspective. It's filled with wisdom on how to live life in this broken world in the midst of hardships in a way that God's glorified, and we're blessed. And it's about a peace that the world, no matter what it throws at us, can never take away. Father, we thank you for this journey that is in front of us, for the simple reality, the honesty that life is hard and that somehow you're in the mix of it. Forgive us, Father, for thinking that Christianity is meant to be a way out of the hard times instead of a way through them. And teach us, Father, how to embrace this journey to receive in abundance the grace and peace that is ours in all of life's circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen.